Hello, and welcome to the Business of Biotech. On today's episode, we're talking biotech finance with Smithil Shah, Chief Business and Financial Financial Officer at ProQR. ProQR is developing RNA therapies for rare genetic diseases with a focus on those of the inherited retinal variety. Smithil, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Matt, and thank you for having me on the show. That's our pleasure. I'm 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 uh, I'm happy to have you here. So I'm just going to share a little bit uh, a little bit more about you with the audience, and then we're going to kind of roll into some of your backstory. Uh, Smithel has been with ProQR since 2014 when she joined as CFO, and now as CBFO, she's in charge of finance, investor relations, and communications, business development, and commercial. Which sounds like an awful lot. I want to get into that a little bit. Sounds like there ought to be three or four job titles covering all those things. Smithel, we'll, we'll we'll want to get into that. Prior to joining ProQR, Smithel managed Gil- Gilead Sciences' multi-billion-dollar debt, cash, and investment portfolios. Spent time in investment banking at Learing Partners and J.P. Morgan and did some R&D work at J&J, which you might be questioning, giving her current focus on finance. But you see, Smithel has a master's degree in chemical engineering. And that's where I'd like to begin getting to know Smithel a little bit better. Uh, so your undergrad and master's are in chemical engineering and your first pharma position kind of followed that track, right? You were in uh, some product development roles um, then you changed trajectory with an MBA in finance. So tell us a little bit about what prompted that move. Yeah, and it is actually a little less random than it sounds. Um, okay. grow, growing up, uh, my parents had actually a manufacturing business, uh, manufacturing and trading where they made um, intermediates for dyes or colors for basically clothing, as well as some pharmaceutical ingredients. So sort of the business of pharma was kind of always... Uh, something that was uh, the dinner table talk, right? Mm. Um, And my dad actually was a chemical engineer. So again, I kind of sort of followed in those footsteps. So uh, that's kind of how I ended up with a bachelor's and master's in chemi with the goal that I would probably always move towards the business side. Um, But it's kind of hard to do business and then go to R&D. It's always better the other way around. Mm. Um, and that's how I ended up at uh, Alza, which was a portfolio company for Johnson & Johnson out here in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. um, and then did my MBA simultaneously at UC Berkeley, um, which then prompted me to go into business. Um, and I have to say investment banking is a fantastic way to start your business career. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Um, so after after leaving the product side, you did make that move into investment banking at J.P. Morgan and and Lyrinc. Uh, you know, you, you, as you said, it's a fantastic way to kind of start your business career. How, how did uh, those positions kind of prepare you for your next role in Treasury at Gilead? Yeah, absolutely. So I think investment banking, broadly speaking, is something that even very early on in your business career gives you a very broad perspective. You kind of see how the C-suite at different companies think, whether they are multi-billion dollar companies like Gilead or very small companies like Procure. And so you have a very good insight into the strategic thinking and the strategic way companies finance and grow their business. Um, It has the financial aspect and the modeling aspect for sure, Um, but then also has a very, very big component of the strategic aspect. I do also think it gives you a brilliant work ethic because you're working all the time. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, you kind of have to stay on. 
Um, so I think, you know, as I mentioned, investment banking is a fantastic way to start your uh, business career because very early on um, in that career, you get insight into not just the financial, but the really strategic aspects of very big businesses like Gilead or small businesses like ProQR. And you get to see how the C-suite, the board thinks, how uh, financial and strategic decisions are made. So it does prepare you in some ways for similar roles everywhere. I think when it comes to Gilead, Gilead was one of my clients when I was at uh, Learing Partners. And they were um, at the process where they were thinking through strategic alternatives of how to give shareholder value back because they were trading at an enterprise value or a net takeout value of just about 20 billion. Um, and so we uh, helped them think, think through their alternatives uh, based on which they did a really large uh, share buyback program from the shareholders. So they returned capital back to the shareholders. Um, they funded it with uh, convertible debt. And eventually all of that led to the final dividend that they announced um, as well. So I was part of that whole process. Um, and then speaking to their CFO, um, Robin Washington, who's a fantastic lady um, and probably one of the most successful people in, in biotech uh, finance. Uh, she hired me in uh, to do kind of what I was doing for them as an advisor to do it in-house. So that's kind of how I got to Treasury uh, through their cash portfolios, their debt portfolios, their dividend and thinking through the strategic finance piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you roll that experience up uh, into, into, into Gilead, but, but then to make the move from Gilead to ProQR, uh, that, that seems, so you joined ProQR when it was just two years old. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So that had to be a pretty big shift moving from, from a big, great big giant company like that to uh, a, a brand new startup. So what sort of prompted that, uh, that move from big, big pharma to a clinical stage enterprise? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of brings me back to how I went to Gilead and I was having lunch with Robin um, and she asked me, so what is it that you want to do? Um, and I said, I actually want to be in your shoes someday. And obviously not Gilead, but some uh, other company. So I'll do whatever it takes to prepare myself to get to that role. So of course, I'd seen the strategic side of finance when I was in investment banking. I was in the business being at J&J or Alza and, and seeing the R&D side of it. Uh, but would be great to see the operational finance that takes it to run a company and how it scales. So someday when at ProQR, we become a multi-billion dollar company, you kind of know what mm. pieces you need to put in place when. So it was always meant to be something that was um, not a career ending move to go to Gilead, but really truly as a prep uh, for that next role. Um, so I had a fantastic two years at Gilead where we launched probably the biggest biotech launch there ever was in the hepatitis C drug, uh, Sovardi, where their revenues doubled from 10 to 20 billion in the time I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in some ways, I didn't plan anything in terms of the timing of when I would go to a company like ProQR. Uh, but really, it was ProQR that prompted that. Um, so it was more about what that company was and why I was drawn to that. Um, as opposed to particularly trying to leave Gilead because it was a lot of fun building Gilead's uh, finance uh, organization as well. Sure. And, and we'll get into, you know, the, the motivation for uh, joining ProQR uh, based on its, its therapeutic endeavors 
and, and the science that it's pursuing. But I'm, I'm just curious if you could, if we could kind of linger on the whole transition from big pharma to, you know, startup pharma for a minute and maybe offer up some advice to folks who are perhaps in a similar position. You know, you, you, you consider your, your career path when you were at Gilead, you know, perhaps you could have stayed there for a little while longer and then gone and become the CFO uh, for, for another uh, big pharma company, you know, that, that, that might be a, a likely, a likely choice, but to make the transition to transition to a, a smaller company for those who, who might, you know, take that, that, that same path. What are some of the, um, I guess, big eye-opening sort of differences that you had to embrace from managing, you know, big, you know, enterprise market ready uh, commercial products and, and, and that kind of uh, finance to, you know, hey, we, uh, you know, we need to raise around. Maybe we need to figure out how we're going to fund our next, uh, our next study. It's got to be a giant, giant thing to get your head around. Absolutely, it is. So, if it is in terms of advice to somebody, I think it's more about knowing yourself and what is an environment in which you thrive. Mm-hmm. So, I went when you're in investment banking, no matter whether you're at J.P. Morgan or leaving, you're working in three or four or five people teams. So, it's really small, very fluid. You're sitting next to each other decisions get made really quickly um, to going to something that was Gilead, right? Or any other big company where now it's scaled so much that with scale needs to come discipline and process. So things need to follow a structured path and you can't um, be very fluid in your decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, there is a very heavy element of structure and process, which is really good to learn in how you have to scale because every company that will go that big will eventually need to get there. Right. So it was, it's more about the learning for me from that. But personally, I always liked the smaller company environment better because you're much closer to the science. Uh, you're much closer to the decision-making of the science, the business. You know, we spoke about sort of the expansion of my role from, you know, just being in finance to going into business development to commercial that kind of insight you will typically have much more in a smaller organization. So that's the fun part. I guess the other side of it is that you really got to be fluid and you got to be able to react to things um, and pivot if you need to um, take on more, if you need to with three jobs and one pay or, (laughs) (laughs) and, and and do what it needs to be done, roll up your sleeves. So it's, it's, it's different. And some people really thrive in a better structured environment and some people like the fluidity. So I, I guess it's good to know yourself and then choose accordingly. Yeah. Is that a comment just to, just to revisit that, you know, multi, uh, multi-part title that you have there? Is, is that, um, and I know in any, in any startup environment, there, you know, there's an expectation that the management team wear many different hats. Uh, are, is that combination pretty common though? I mean, business development, commercial, finance, uh, is, is, does that commonly roll up into, into one person? Uh, commonly, no. Um, are there a lot of examples of it? Yes. And mm-hmm. I think it comes down to the person itself and what the company needs. So to me, the CFO always has to complement what the CEO needs, right? Because you're a strategic thought partner for the CEO. Right. Um, for instance, um, if the CEO is much, much more outward going, um, and likes to do all of the investor conferences as in, in all of those discussions, then probably a CFO who brings more of the solid just finance and accounting background and takes care of the house, that's a great fit. 
on the other hand if the ceo is more like i want to run my r&d i want to run my business i need you to take care of all of the external stuff then the cfo needs to have a different phenotype uh, which is really what my phenotype coming into procure was i'm not an accountant by training i'm a chemical engineer by training mm-hmm. um so to be able to be strategic lead the conversations with investors speak the science um that's kind of how uh, my role evolved and i think the title i don't get too hung up on titles um i was doing most of these things anyway commercial was something where i strongly felt again kind of coming back to looking at gilead you should start building commercial thinking into your programs early and i'm not sure all biotechs do that they wait till finishing phase 3 get your regulatory approval and somewhere in that start looking at that yeah i think that you actually should build it into your development plan um what end points you're studying so makes access easier for patients down the road and with payers so that's kind of how me and the ceo over brainstorming hey we need to start thinking about this even before we are in a pivotal trial are you going to build a whole commercial organization before that no uh so then it was like hey you want to do it sure um and then it it the title just sort of came after that yeah yeah Very good. Um, so yeah, we've we've spent a bunch of time talking about you and what what kind of led you uh, up to this point where you joined ProQR. But let's talk about ProQR for a minute, and then we can get back to to your role there. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, why it was founded and what it aims to do. Yeah, it's a company that's driven by a lot of passion, which is sort of what attracted me uh, to it. Um, it's got a very interesting history. So Daniel Dubor, our founding CEO. um was a high tech entrepreneur in the netherlands hmm. uh so started a bunch of uh tech companies um incidentally 11 years ago his son was born with a rare disease um for which there wasn't much available mm-hmm. um so he decided he didn't want to sit on the sidelines so spent the next couple of 2 3 years actually learning about the business of biotech speaking to a whole host of people and then decided to uh found an effort around it so he really recruited the key pieces well so gerard plattenberg who was also the founding uh, uh, you know founder co-founder alongside daniel and currently still is our chief innovation officer because he's a ideas guy how do you even though this seems really tough to do how do we solve it so mm-hmm. he's truly just almost like a mad scientist figuring out how we can make it work um so he recruited him he had also founded prosensa back in the day which was another dutch rna company that eventually biomarin bought and then from the business side it was dinko valerio who was a scientist at genentech and then um was the ceo at another dutch biotech company called crucel that eventually johnson and johnson bought um and then henry tamir who everybody in the business of biotech knows pioneer in uh, rare diseases So the four of them actually started this company together um to help and solve these rare disease problems that nobody had really worked on. The business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at cytivalifesciences.com/emergingbiotech. 
That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Why was it strategic to bring you on two years later in 2014? And I, I suspect, you know, you, you talked a little bit about your uh, philosophy around commercialization kind of being in mind from, from, from the outset, uh, which um, I, were they were they aware of that sort of being your philosophy and kind of was was that did that play into the strategy of bringing you uh, in early on? Uh, no, I wish it was really that thought out, but it wasn't quite. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know every biotech company goes through that. That okay, now we're going public, so we need a strategic CFO who will maintain the investor dialogue. Um, comes from the U.S. investor world, so the investment banking side of things has also scaled companies from a financial point of view, given the experience at uh, Gilead and really also understands the business of biotech because spending as much time in R&D. So that's kind of what the thinking was to bring me on so I could lead the investor communications, the financings going forward and be really strategic into wherever the company kind of goes, you know. Mm -hmm. So that was the thought process, at least uh, at the time when I joined in 2014. And the company was started in 2012 uh, which was started with literally two used computers and two people. Yeah. Um, and the real major uh, steps occurred only towards the end of 2013, early 2014. Um, when, you know, March or April of 2014, they got their series A, which was ended up becoming a, what you call a crossover round, which is the bridge to an IPO. Mm -hmm. And immediately after that, they kicked off the CFO search. And then just as they were going public, I, I, I joined them. So that yeah. was kind of the history. Yeah, very good. What, the, the company's grown really rapidly. I mean, to your, to your point, you know, 2012, 2013 sort of uh, genesis. Um, it, it's, it's grown quickly. What, what do you attribute uh, the, the growth to? What's at the root of that? Yeah, it has been a fantastic growth, right? Because when I think back from 2014 to today, um, we have had, approvals for six programs to go into the clinic from start to finish all internally discovered. Mm -hmm. um, so as you call it, quote unquote, six INDs in six years, which is, which is a lot, um, you know, uh, for any, any company pretty much. And to be at the point where from that perspective, be in what you call a pivotal phase two, three trial with the potential to launch in the next couple of years. Indeed, it has been rapid growth. I think, I would attribute the growth of the company to a couple of things. Um, one is the ability to be nimble, flexible, be able to pivot as needed because this is drug development. There's always surprises, right? And so how do you make sure that you are able, you're, you're quick enough to move? Um, so I think that was one. And then I think um, one big part of it was everybody around the table had a very similar mindset. Um, because uh, as I said, our first uh, financing was a, was a series A, but was technically a crossover. Um, so we weren't founded as a small venture backed company that needed to execute on one program mm -hmm. and then, um, you know, uh, really get that return of investment from a venture capital perspective. Most of the people on the board were independent, uh, including Henry. And so they really wanted to build the company. So we made very early on investments in our discovery or innovation group um, where we founded a platform technology um, and we've invested a lot in what we call our translational work. 
So we want to get to the point where we can truly predict um, from, an, uh, from the lab as to what the response in the clinic would be. And yeah. that's really where we are heavily investing. And so I think if we achieve what we want to achieve, we probably will see even a faster growth than we've seen so far. So I think that's really what the key is. Yeah, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the six INDs in six years. And, um, you know, I'm looking at the looking at the site, I mean, you guys have, you appear to have, what, a dozen preclinical programs, a bunch of, you know, clinical candidates. Um, how does that breadth sort of uh, affect uh, your, your position as CBFO? The, the, just the yeah. breadth of this, you know, of this uh, portfolio. It's uh, for, for an eight-year-old company, that's a lot deeper than I would say average. Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, I think it affects everything. We have a very small management team, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all kind of have a view and we um, talk to each other about all the different aspects, right? Because if you think about a small company, it's never that siloed. If we want to raise money, um, most of what investors focus on is the science for which we need R&D to be as tuned in to the financial strategy um, as, you, as you would as the CFO. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, when it comes to spending on programs, what are going to create what you call value creating uh, from the longer term perspective, how we're going to fund that, how will we triage between these dozen preclinical programs what will we invest in first? What we invest in second? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we power this trial? I think in some ways, there is, I don't think, any decision that we are not privy to as a group. And we debate it um, you know, heavily sometimes, uh, but we kind of do it as a group. So it does affect my job daily, I, I feel, on all of those aspects and where our pipeline's going. Yeah. Uh, how often does your science background kind of creep up into your day-to-day role as a, as a finance person now? And, uh, and is, is there any, um, I guess, pressure to quell your, your interest in science uh, in your current role? So to be clear, I'm not a scientist because engineers are one level below scientists. Okay. So you ha- right. I haven't really done the core, you know, biology, immunology, there's a polite, uh, that's a polite <laughs> caveat, Smith. I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you the opportunity to offer that. You know, you're, you're talking to a guy who is like a, a comms journalism major, right? So that's like 18 <laughs> steps below chemical engineer. <laughs> no, I, I get that from home from my husband too, because he's done cancer immunology. And in fact, he's the CFO of another biotech company. Um, yeah. But, you know, just like ah, this, this is more deep science, you know, it's not quite engineering. Sure. Um, aspect of it. No, but you, you, and the good thing about biotech, which I find so fantastic is that every disease is so different that there's learning to be had in every disease, every platform, uh, every way a drug is designed. So I don't think you can ever be an expert in that. That said, um, I'm super interested in it, of course. So as a result, I dig down into it quite a bit. Um, because that's really what the questions I will get from investors who are so many of them MD PhDs. Mm -hmm. So their level of understanding sometimes of these molecules is deeper than mine, but I still need to translate it for them. So I wouldn't say I necessarily add much value from a core (laughs) basic science perspective, but understand it enough to ask the relevant business questions. 
Right, right. And then to, to, I guess, probably understand uh, how how what's going on on the science side kind of reflects uh, what's going on on the finance side, which is an important thing. Um, what, what, what would you say has been uh, the, the biggest challenge that you've faced, especially sort of in light of, uh, again, that giant challenge that I referenced early on, moving from a well-funded, well-heeled Gilead to uh, a scrappy startup like ProQRR? Um, what, what, what's been the most challenging thing for you in, in the role? Not, not so much for the company, but, but for you. Yeah, I think um, indeed the, the resource decisions that you have to make, um, the scale of which is so much smaller than what you would at Gilead. What is a rounding error um, is a decision that we actually have to debate in the management team. So mm-hmm. it, is, it is very different from that point of view. Um, I think me personally, um, I sit out in the Bay Area. The company is headquartered in the Netherlands. We have an office in Cambridge. Um, in today's world, I know everybody's virtual. So I, that's what I tell everybody. Welcome to my world. Right. Um, but it's uh, that part I still, I, I still struggle with because I like to see the people. You know, you want to uh, interact with them, sit across from them, which you get when, you, when I was at Gilead and investment banking, which is different here. So I think personally, that's sort of always something that I have to invest a lot of time in is, is the people getting to know them, uh, doing the best you can, and then making the most of it when you are together. Yeah, well, that's certainly timely uh, advice to your point. Everyone's kind of struggling through that now, which, um, you know, you, you've, you've, been, you've been down that road for quite some time. Do you, do you make it to the Netherlands uh, from time to time? So I did. Before the pandemic uh, hit, I used to aim to go to the Netherlands once every month. Oh, uh, so okay. I wouldn't say it was 12 times a year, but likely more around nine to 10 times a year. Mm-hmm. So I would spend about a week, Monday through Friday there. So that was great, right? So you got to connect with everyone. Um, And then you would have at least that, you know, a trip to the East Coast, which was uh, in Cambridge or New York for investor conferences. So got to see the team there as well. So, yeah. But but now, after March, I haven't seen the inside of a plane. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's probably in some ways a refreshing change. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So as, uh, as the, um, the pipeline has developed uh, and progressed at, at ProQR, um, and you've been there to witness, you know, the, the majority of that, that progression, uh, how does that offer up some advice for other folks in finance roles in similar size companies about like how, how uh, the, the progression of a pipeline directly impacts the, the finance role? Yeah. And maybe I'll answer that question with one of the challenges faced by us and how finance was kind of critical to that. Yeah. So as I said, we started out with trying to solve for a disease uh, based on the personal experience that our CEO had. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we were a small company with not quite the resources with the only other competitor in the space at the time. And they made tremendous amount of progress um, with their pipeline. Um, as a result, we were sort of almost always playing catch up. So it's still a molecule that has potential, but the amount of resources that it would take to actually develop that uh, would be tremendous. And of course, there was already innovation and breakthrough occurring at that company. So the way when we started thinking about our business, we were like, okay, we have so many other 
molecules that we're working on. How should we think about the company now? Where should we pivot to? Should we change that focus? Um, which is exactly what we did. We had, had a number of programs in ophthalmology for inherited retinal disorders for the back of the eye that nobody had ever studied. Mm-hmm. So now in this case, we were leading the pack. We're the first ones in almost all of these diseases doing clinical trials or, or pretty far ahead of where some of the other programs are. So that took quite an effort internally. How do you change the organization, the structure, the expertise, what you bring in, which we're still building and doing. Um, and then also the investors, they had invested in us for our lead program at the time. Um, so there were people who uh, said, no, we'll go with you and, and on this other adventure. There were others who wanted to join now the new story. There were some who said, no, we were interested in the old story, so we're out. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took quite some time to pivot the shareholder base even, uh, which was obviously a finance activity. To, to get there. And then as part of that, how do you raise the money and how will you fund these programs and kind of make that the centerpiece of what we do from an external point of view. Yeah. So that challenge sort of tells you kind of how um, strategic the CFO's role can be mm-hmm. um, in, in guiding through uh, what we went through, which was a major pivot. Sure. Yeah. All right. So the, the, the easy question was, what was the challenge? The, the harder question to answer is uh, how, how you addressed it. Uh, can you share some, some insight into how, you know, and, and maybe specifically, I mean, you, can, you can talk about how the company as a whole uh, addressed these challenges. Um, but, but I guess the expectation around the, the, the chief financial officer um, in solving some of those problems, what does that look like? What kind of uh, pressure does that create? And what are some of the kind of go-to um, equations to, to work your way out of those, those tight spots. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, looking back in hindsight, it was such a great experience at the time you're going through it. Not so much because, (laughs) you know, at the time you, when you've been with a company, you feel passionate about it. That's also part of being at a small company. Uh, It almost is your baby, you know? So if you, if, if you're worried about financing, it's, it's, I felt it every day, you know, mm-hmm. um, and me and the CEO, both, we would just chat every day. Okay. How are we going to do this? What are the investors? Uh, how do we educate them? How do they see this part of the story? Um, how do we brand that? There was so much thought that went into that and even more effort into talking to all the different investors to see what we have. We always had it, but it's just people didn't focus on it. Yeah. Um, to bring the scientists in to be able to tell that story to investors so they truly believe in that aspect of it. Then the ability to raise the capital for them to actually put the money in, that in and of itself was um, quite quite a, a, a process which we went through, which is what we did. So it was really about education, bringing the capital in, and then slowly putting the pieces internally together, um, pivoting certain key roles uh, top to bottom, um, and, and bringing the right set of people in now to really, truly only focus on ophthalmology, yeah. um, which we're still continuing to, to build. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it's, it was a long process. In hindsight, a fantastic uh, experience. Yeah, excellent. So we're running short on time, but uh, where, where do you go from here? You know, with all that experience and all that, you know, the, the trials, the tribulations, the victories, the, you know, sorting it out, 
what's next for ProQR? I'm, as I said today, I'm like super excited about what it can be. Where at this point, um, I would say undervalued from a stock perspective based on the progress and the programs we have. Um, so we are at an interesting cusp. And I think the if I had to answer it in one word, it's scaling, um, mm-hmm. which is sort of, as I said, what kind of comes also a little bit looking at big companies and in two areas. One is to actually break through and become a commercial company because it will be fantastic to see that trend to actually start making a difference to patients and getting it to them and um, getting to that level. And then the second piece is how do you fund that growth from a pipeline point of view? So really, truly investing and seeing the fruits of our translational model, where hopefully we will have more than one IND a year um, if that really bears out. And we did that with our first couple of programs. So we're super excited about that. So I think indeed it will be scaling both the commercial and the innovation development growth. And I guess then finally, how do you fund all that? <laughs> Which, yeah, that, that certainly rolls up to you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, you know, the, the, you just hit the, hit, the, uh, hit the gas towards commercial and then maybe the funding will start to take care of itself, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let, let's hope so. Knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. Well, when that, uh, when that milestone is passed, I'd, uh, I'd love to have you back on the show to celebrate. Absolutely. We'll do that. Well, I appreciate the time, Smithel. And thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That's Mitel Shah. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva, which offers a trove of great resources for emerging biotechs at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. Check us out at bioprocessonline.com, where you can kindly sign up for our newsletter without regret because you'll find it quite informative. And in the meantime, thanks for listening. <laughs>